Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Inland Valley Arts and Literature Show. Uh, and today we've got three writers, uh, me, I'm John Branningham, and Trevor Lost Johnson and Kendall Johnson. And we're going to be talking about uh, Ken's recent book, Chaos and Ash. Um, and Ken, I wonder if you can give us a quick overview about that. Okay. So from about 1985 till about 2005, I was involved in... Um, as a therapist who, with a specialty in trauma, I was involved in consulting with organizations for whom some traumatic event had befallen. Um, I'd been a firefighter for a number of years, um, a few years with the Forest Service, and that extended into um, changed from a relationship of being a firefighter to a relationship of being a contract consultant. And so I worked with the U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service, uh, California Department of Forestry, L.A. County Fire Department, ad nauseum. Um, a bunch of, bunch of places, not all of which were fire. I did some work for the military. I did some work for police agencies as well. Okay. And this is so, your... your- so these are this this book is a set of nonfiction stories um, that are basically memoir, uh, talking about large incidents that were, for some reason, either interesting or controversial or problematic in some way. And they they also um, uh, triggered some things inside of you based on uh, your past. Very much so. I had I had been in Vietnam with the U.S. Navy, and I had been a firefighter for three fire seasons, and had uh, just about transmogrified into a crispy critter myself several times. And so there was a lot of old stuff that would be called up. Mm-hmm. And that that's the part that was kind of that was inter- most interesting to me, uh, because it's not what you think of. You don't think of the healer and that person's backstory. I I. Read, I'd worked with a person named Linda Hogan, who was a sex therapist, and you know, and she, uh, you know, think, well, that, this is somebody who can see all the stuff with a critical eye. And she wrote a piece that she published someplace. It was about um, what happens when the sex therapist falls in love with the client, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, that, that that's always a danger. Behind behind the person who's who's helping is a human being who's also suffering, and that that to me was re- really fascinating to, to look through this. Uh, there are moments of dissociation in this book as you're trying to help other people. And just how, 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 how do you deal with that when, when you're going through it? Um, you're asking a question that has a number of different possible perspectives wrapped up in it. One is how do you deal it when you're on the ground um, yourself in an initial incident that affected you negatively how do you deal with it on the ground when you come back into difficult situations and memories of the initial incident are triggered? Uh, how do you deal with it when you're trying to make sense of it um, to other people who ask you what you do? <laughs> and then how do you deal with it when you're trying to uh, be a honest, disclosive parent and those things malfunction eight ways and sideways as well. 
Yeah. So what, what you're <laughs> so saying, it's, it's, it's a complicated easy. question. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing to, to answer in a, in a quick soundbite or possibly is it something you can answer? How do you deal with it? Okay. So there's, there's ways of dealing with things when you get hit by overwhelming feelings, when you're in a situation or when you're reminded of a situation, there's, there's concrete things you can do, breathing exercises, and you can, you can uh, change the way you're thinking about it. You can um, aim for a higher ground and, you know, all these, these kind of things you read in, in pop psych books about be, dealing with the unthinkable. There's also dealing with the long-term erosion that occurs with repeated exposure to kind of the, the, the bad news of being human, mm. the, the limitations and the perversions and the, the diminution of the spirit that occurs when, you know, you grow up thinking things are one way in the world and then you're hit by a series of epiphanies that that point out how wrong you've been <laughs> and what may sustained you growing up isn't what the world is mm. you know that it operates at a different level that's interesting yeah well okay so uh the these these stories are an act of healing very uh, much so yeah, um, and, and there's an interesting. I've, I really wanted to pull that out in in the book, and so I seized upon a literary device. Is um, specifically at the time, um, at the time, at the 25 year old time, um, I had a series of meetings with therapists. Some were. Um, very effective, very helpful, others less so. Um, I rolled all the therapists up into one character. And in the book, I have repeated recurrent visits after incidents in which I discuss with the therapist the salient emotional points or philosophical issues that were raised in, in that incident for me. And so they're, they're brief, you know, a page and a half, three pages maybe at the most, in which I have just snippets out of key supervisory events. Clinicians, if, if they do things right, sit down with other clinicians and they discuss cases that they have that may be problematic and the supervising clinician um, hopefully gives insights or um, makes suggestions or helps them look at it from a different perspective, that sort of thing. So I had this character and I called him Dr. Williams. Um, Of the probably 10 therapists I saw off and on during that 25 year period, um, none of them were named Williams. But, but there was one who was um, a, a colorful guy. He, was, he had been a truck driver 
initially, and then he had become an Episcopal priest, and then he migrated into becoming a therapist, and finally ended up going back to truck driving. Um, <laughs> and he's a, a good guy, and I related well to him because unlike many therapists, he wasn't just a, a recent graduate from therapy school. He had more to him than that. He had been in the world enough to be more conversant, and he had seen enough stuff. He had served in the military. He wasn't shocked and dismayed by whatever I, I dealt with. Um, and so I, didn't, I wasn't worried about frying his brains with my imagery. You know, I was, you know, he, he provided a lot of interesting commentary to my, my inner voices at the time. And so I used that guy as being the single supervising therapist that would recur throughout the book. Yeah, I like those pieces. They, they function to me like uh, the interspersal chapters in Hemingway's In Our Time. Right, yeah. where he, he goes into World War One, and we see what that truly is. Yeah. And I, I think that's an apt analogy, too, because what Hemingway is getting at is the tremendous uh, psychological pain that, that Nick goes through, and we finally end up in the big two-hearted river where he can barely function. Um, right. And it's because of that. And this felt, in a lot of ways, of you going not into war because that's too violent. I, uh, well, maybe it's, it's apt. I don't know. Um, were you thinking about that when, when you're writing this? Thinking about what Hemingway? Uh, Hemingway, yeah, and the way the way he he works that book. A number of writers have done that, and so I was thinking about all of them. Okay. Um, the the ones that I knew about was familiar with, and thinking about how can how can a conversation that occurred after some incident. Um, shed light on the incident, shed light on the person who went through the incident, and shed light on more general issues that face all of us. Yeah. And so that was the, the kind of why I would choose certain interchanges after certain incidents. Uh -huh. the, the book follows kind of a chronological unfolding of from the time I initially got into it when I was a firefighter and I had firefighting flashbacks, et cetera, et cetera, and moved on in, in um, my life. So the incidents were roughly chronological. Thematically, um, I would choose things as the themes matured, as they got more complex. So I was having, let's say I went to five fires my first year as a consulting therapist. Maybe on the 20th year, I went to five fires also, but there were a couple of other things which hit more deeply. Um, I had times when, when I would actually be on fires where old fires would come up again. I remember having to, I, I managed to, you know, when in 2003, when, when a good part of California was on fire, you know, the last time. And, um, you know, I was serving as a mental health um, officer on the area command, which was responsible for all of the fires management 
from about Simi clear down the Mexican border, you know, big ones, including deaths of personnel and, and stuff like that. So I was in that role. I was both, and I, this is where I made the mistake. I, I shouldn't have been actually doing individual consultation and working with teams who had been, been burned over and stuff. I should have been working with them if I was also sending other therapists out to work with, with other situations. I should have kept those clear. Uh, but, and that's one of the things that I talked about in the book, how it's easy to get caught up in this work. Um, but after one incident where a team had been burned over, I came out of that and I, and I took the, the peer, the guy who was helping lead that a firefighter who was, I had been involved with um, on fires before. So he knew me, I knew him and I could trust him. And I had to, to walk for probably an hour and a half just going motor mouth about a burnover that I had experienced. Mm. And, you know, the feeling like there, I can't get enough oxygen, feeling like there was very dicey whether any of us were going to get out of it. And that stuff came back. That was the most flagrant time that that had happened. But, but um, that's kind of the nature of that kind of work. And it's the nature of writing about that kind of work. That's it. And so, you know, you and I have talked about um, providing some consultation and direction for, for writers who are, you know, trying to write about dramatic things that involve them personally and, and ways that we can help with keeping perspective and clearing out psychological addicts and, you know, in the process. And that's kind of the other interesting dimension. I think the, a follow-up book to Chaos and Ash is going to be how to take care of yourself when you write books like Chaos and Ash. Yeah, yeah, um, that's interesting. The the denial is is a is a protective thing. Oh boy, yeah. yeah. Um, Trevor, I, I I saw a thought pass you 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 mind a couple minutes ago, and you wanted to ask a follow up question. I think. You know that that that's very perceptive of you, John. Um, <laughs> I I should say you know. I, I have managed to um, to blunder upon your podcast, and it's so kind of you to include me in it. Um, I am Dr. Johnson's son, and and that certainly puts me in a in a unique evaluative position. Um, but what I was thinking about specifically um, was, you know, I'm 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 recalling the point you made about Ernest Hemingway, and and I was thinking about his style of writing, which he characterized as as the iceberg theory, where um, you know, a, a deceptively limpid surface hides underneath it so much subtext. And, and that's really a stylistic model of psychology, I feel. So, so I was wondering, um, and this might be a question for both John and Ken, um, you know, is there a, is there a, a visible school of, of writers today that are consciously um, psychoanalytic, you know, other than simply, you know, confessional writing, you know, which, which is a broad genre. Um, are there, you know, are there other writers who kind of inhabit that intersection of um, being a counselor on one hand and being a writer on the other? And 
you know, is, is there a sense of embodying that in, in a writer's style? Um, so I, I don't, I don't know of any group in particular and um, psychologists, uh, uh, this is not true of Ken. Psychologists generally have a hard time writing literary works because they spent so much time with using distancing language and you have to do the exact opposite when you go into fi fiction. But there are certainly writers who are really getting into deep psychology and healing themselves and other people. Um, I've, I've been reading a lot of um, African-American narratives lately, and the, the one that really jumps out to me is Black Indian um, by, um, God, I forgot her name. Um, I'm sorry? Shonda Buchanan. Shonda Buchanan. Um, and she's talking about the long-term effects of the uh, of, of black people who are also Native Americans being pushed out of their of, of the culture of, of Native Americans, and she traces very clearly how this is happening in modern time. Now she doesn't do this in in like a historical way. She she's it's a memoir, and so it's very much like Ken's book in that sense. And she says, okay, there, there's there's my 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 cousin who's addicted to drugs, and without without. Stating it clearly, she she really shows how it goes all the way back to that that crime, right? And it's it's like you know, there's personal responsibility stuff, yes, but th this person, because of that specific thing, has been put in this this position. And so I think there's a lot of, of writers doing that kind of thing. Um, uh, but a, a particular school, I don't know. And Ken, I, I cut you off. Well, no, I don't. I agree with you that there's not a particular school. There are some individual writers who, who come to mind. Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, for example, yeah. has, has written, you know, like the man who mistook his wife for a hat rack. And, and I think he did the, uh, the initial book that was... That was Awakenings, right? Yeah, 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 Awakenings. Oh. There, was, there was another one that he did, too, that was just fascinating, but... And it, just blanking on it. Anyway, he's written a bunch of stuff and stories as well as, as whole books. Um, he's one, but he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about himself and putting himself in the picture. He maintains the, the kind of God's eye point of view narrative um, role and talks about these odd ducks. Um, but he doesn't talk about how working with odd ducks affects him personally. Hmm. Um, so, so that one doesn't work as a, as a true example of this, but he does it. Yeah, there's a, um, a husband and wife mystery writing team. They do LA kind of stuff and both are psychologists and they write um, their, their main protagonists are also psychologists who and so there's lots of chatters you go through it about psychological stuff but again it's not very disclosive that whole business about self-disclosure and treating the inner process as part of the outer process um i don't know a lot of people who do it certainly not an organized school of writers yeah yeah uh and there, there are people who get to deep psychological truth, but in different ways. than the That's way the whole are. point of writing. Yeah. But I mean, different ways than you are. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting, I'm thinking about Amy Bender uh, to some degree. Does, yeah. does that. She does some really interesting stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. 
I'm, I'm not I'm not good at at retrieving this morning, so I can't. <laughs> but there's there's a bunch of people who've particularly short. Who's the lady who wrote about witnessing the eclipse? I've forgotten, but I know what you're talking about. Me too. <laughs> Goes with the gray hair, I guess. Um, anyway, that stuff, and she wrote about seeing the weasel uh, and, and, and finding the, the eagle who was, when it, when it was, had died, had the, the skull of a weasel attached to its, its neck, and, and it hadn't, Annie Dillard, Kate's lurking in the background here, she's, she was pointed out, um, Annie Dillard's the writer who did that, and she's just magnificent. Yeah, amazing yeah. writer. Uh huh. And I think yeah. that yeah, I think these are just different paths towards the same, you know, destination, if you will, that we we take as writers or as artists or as just human beings generally when we're we're trying to find what it is that's really important to. You know, to notice. It's interesting to me, though, because uh, I, I've never seen a, a good depiction of a teacher on television. They're, they're, it's always badly done, or in movies, mostly in books. There's one good depiction in a book that I know of. Um, that's Joe Scott Coe's book, uh, Teacher Point Blank. It's a fantastic yeah. depiction. And uh, I, I've been told by my doctor friends that no, TV never gets medicine right, and, and neither do books. And I, I think that's probably true of psychologists, too. Absolutely. And, I'm feeling, uh, as, I'm, as I watch psychologists on TV, it's just, that doesn't seem very helpful, what you're doing there. It's, it's, it's a great plot device, but it's a, but I'm wondering, this, I think, gets closer to the, the real life of psychology, um, which uh, I, I, I think that I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, it's interesting to see this. When we, I'm thinking of the, the, uh, artist talk that you moderated last night about Father Bill and the, the painter in Pomona, who's a Catholic priest. And I'm thinking about how hard it is to describe the man and the way he works. You can, you can describe his paintings and you can say, oh, they're abstract expressionists for the most part. And they, they're, they're very color intensive and texture intensive, but that doesn't open up the fact that every time that man confronts a canvas, it's a crisis in faith. The, mm. the, what he's trying to do is make meaning on the canvas. He's not trying to illustrate God or illustrate any principles of living. He's trying to make meaning on the canvas. And each time, he either succeeds or fails. And, and it's, how do you paint, you know, how do you describe that a TV show, you know? And, yeah. and that's kind of like writers. Every time a writer writes something, the question is, can he make sense of writing as, a, as an act? Or a faith. Yeah. Which is why I think writer biographies I always find unsatisfying. 
um, because it's never about the writing. It's never about the crisis of faith. It's always about some side thing um, that all people have to deal with, and it's made to appear that it's it's special because the person is a writer, right? Yeah. It's, or it's the discussion of genius as being a negative thing um, because we we need to work our way through the fact that he's genius and we're not. Um, mm-hmm. Like uh, so, you'll, you'll see. Hemingway, the, what we t- discussed about Hemingway is less his philosophy, meaning, and, and what he's doing, and more the fact that he was kind of mean to some people some of the time, and he drank too much. Drank a lot and got in fights. Was that? He oh, drank yeah. a lot and got in fights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, you know. So, so yeah, and, and so I, I think there's, there's, there's real value in, in when I see something that's written with authenticity, and we, we see that it's, it's, it's not some sort of dramatic sort of uplifting it's painful the way life is painful and uh, i think we get that through through your your work well i appreciate that because what you've done is sort of say okay uh, the book isn't 235 pages of irony yeah you know it's about something more important than that and it's it is not about my importance doing the work or the importance of those people who are out in the field doing work under these strenuous and, and frightening circumstances. It's about all of us and how we all approach, approach this, this constructive process called living. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about irony. Um, well, Irony is great fun, and it's, it, it's this process of, of being playful when you talk or paint about stuff. But irony is the process of being ironic intentionally is, in, in my way of thinking, a dissociative process. And in that sense, you know, as we can say, a, well, a, a whole culture suffers from amnesia. Um, a whole culture can suffer a bout of ironic dissociation from the its own silliness or its own uh, toxic nature. And to move beyond irony, I think, is to start to become serious. It doesn't mean you'll pull it off. It doesn't mean you get there. But you have to quit being ironic, just like you have to quit making jokes after a while if you're going to be serious. Um, black humor is is um, not not the kind of um, humor that that's that has any racial overtones, but rather the humor that's used in a squad car blasting down the street at 80 miles an hour on its way to something bad. And the people in the vehicle are making jokes. Well, I hope it's not a such and such this time. And they all laugh. Um, That's what you do to relieve anxiety or fear. You, you direct it elsewhere. And I think a lot of irony is like that kind of humor, that, that it's intended to keep us from taking 
seriously what is the most serious to us. Yeah, so that that, that irony then is, is protective, but ultimately can be dangerous. Uh, Absolutely. If, if you keep moving away from the and away from the pain you keep denying it it's yeah. going to build in, in something cancerous exactly exactly and i think we're we're doing that culturally and now else do we decide survive the madness of 2020 you know where where we in new in in california went through a 4.6 earthquake two nights ago and everybody laughed at how you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it, are the locusts going to be next, you know, or, you know, because uh -huh. so much has befallen us. I think it's the murder hornets in place of locusts. <laughs> yes, and, it, and it is my holy days now, so we should be expecting something <laughs> biblical. <laughs> I know. Rams, horns, fires, <laughs> earthquakes. Well, I hope a plague doesn't happen. Um. So yeah, so th this this book then is a way of avoiding that, of going or not avoiding that, of avoiding irony by going straight into the, the pain. Trying to, yeah. trying to. That's the that's the that's why writing it was so difficult, because I never got there. I got there more than I thought I would. I got there more than some other writers have been able to get there. But that you you ask for authenticity, it's hard to shit. Art authenticity is a bitch, you know. It's hard to know when you're doing it because it hurts so much. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it's why it's so difficult when people are first writing because they they tend to write characters who look very much like themselves, and then they try to protect themselves, um, mm -hmm. and so they'll they'll and they do that through well a lot of different ways. So icing over. Yeah. Okay. So um, thank you so much. The, the last vo voice there was uh, Aruni, who, who's, who's joined us, and uh, uh, and has reminded me of the of the murder hornets. Uh, we're talking about uh, Ken's book, Chaos and Ash, that has just got, gotten out. I'm sorry. What's the name of the book? Uh, Chaos and Ash. Chaos and Ash. Can you put it in the chat so I can? Yeah, it's see? Chaos and Ash. Uh, and it's it's okay. Kent's book about about his years as a trauma psychotherapist. Um, okay, so uh, I think that's it for for the Inland Valley uh, Arts and Literature Show, and we will see you next time. Thanks so much, and thanks Trevor for joining in with that. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And and thanks Kate for lurking. <laughs>